we're off. Now, we are very used, aren't we, to uh, people making demands of us. For example, in the workplace, if you're working, there are kind of expected norms, aren't there, for, for a worker? Appropriate behaviours, appropriate dress codes as well. The employer demands, and the employee dutifully complies, well, most of the time, at least. Interestingly, I was reading the other day, in the 90s, Steve Jobs, who created Apple Computers, famously announced to his company employees that he was going to bring in a uniform. He'd been over to see Sony in Japan, and uh, they had a uniform, and they said, we're going to have to do one here. He was booed off the stage at the campus uh, over in California. Now, I guess most of you at some point received an email or a handbook from your workplace telling you the appropriate dress code or the the way that the company expects you or the, the employer expects you to behave or work. You find out what is acceptable and what is unacceptable. I'll give you some examples. The Swiss bank. Uh, UBS, I don't know if there's anyone from here, they provide their employees with a 44-page handbook of requirements, including instructions for men about the appropriate double Windsor knot that is expected of all employees, and for the women, women, sorry, uh, even suggestions about the best sort of so-called corporate perfume uh, to wear. Now, if you think that is bad... Let me turn to J.P. Morgan, who's another bank somewhere up there in the city. They even sent out a memo recently suggesting that some employees should consider purchasing a steam iron. Or even polishing their shoes. Now, if you are employed, you understand that you've entered into that kind of contractual relationship in which you have obligations, obligations to behave, Obligations to dress, obligations to work in a manner that is appropriate for the workplace in which you find yourself. Now, such requirements, they're obligations, they're not isolated just to the workplace, are they? We understand it in many areas of life. There are expected norms, uh, you know, in families. You can imagine Neil has already taken Milo out for his first daddy-son chat. You know how it goes? Milo, son... If you're going to be a Johnson boy, if you're going to make Daddy proud, you've really got to stop this dribbling stuff. (laughs) You can imagine, can't you? Now, we joke, but the gentry and aristocracy of Victorian Britain did it very formally with their children at three stages in their life. They made it very clear what was acceptable and what was not acceptable to remain in the family. Stray... And you would be removed, forcibly adopted. Parents had very high expectations. Any kind of rogue behaviour, dress unbecoming of the family, well, that would embarrass and undermine the family name. And I do wonder, actually, has things changed that much? I'm not sure. Now, we understand the principle, don't we? Whether an institution, a workplace, a, a relationship... All command, all oblige you to conform to their requirements. If you want to be in, you do what is required to be in. The same is true if you want to be part of another kingdom. Not the kingdom of your family, the kingdom of your workplace, but the eternal kingdom of God. See, the kingdom of God commands. And there's a very high standard. I should say an exceptionally high standard. 
If you walk into UBS or JP Morgan or Neil's workplace up in, up in the city, if you go in Monday morning dressed with your t-shirt and shorts that you went to the gym with on a Sunday afternoon, however comfortable you feel in those sweat-filled, loose-fitting kind of gym attire, it just doesn't matter, does it? Your workplace commands a standard that you have to meet. You can't complain. You can, you can try. You can go to your boss and say, oh, I'm really sorry. I, I don't like those double Windsor knots. They just make me feel a bit kind of choked. If you're a lady, you can say, oh, I don't like these shoes or whatever. If you cannot meet the standards set, you won't be there for long, will you? The kingdom you are part of commands. Now, let me just take you back, if I can, to give you a bit of background information about where we're heading in, in this section of Matthew's Gospel. What we've seen, uh, we're in a, in, a, in a section called, commonly, the Sermon on the Mount. You'll see that at the introduction of chapter 5. We've seen what are called the Beatitudes. Many of you will know those very well. They simply examine the inner character of someone who is in the kingdom of God. They describe the inner transformation that occurs, a righteousness that manifests, it, manifests itself. And we saw that manifest, manifestation of that righteousness in the light and the kind of salty good deeds that we saw in verse 16 uh, last week. Now Jesus used those very common metaphors of salt and light to describe what a person with this inner righteousness should look like, what a kingdom of God person should look like. This is the beginning of a section of the Kingdom of God employee membership handbook, if you like, and put it that way. And what we saw last week is, if you are a part of the Kingdom of God, well, look, Kingdom of God people are, they're salty. That is, they are a preservative in a decaying world. Secondly, we saw the Kingdom of God people are lighty. That is, they are light. I'm going to go. I'm going to beat this. <laughs> Absolutely fine. They are light in a darkening world. Those salty and lighty good deeds of verse 16 were described in terms, though, of righteousness, which is something Jesus has mentioned twice already. Look back in verse 6 of chapter 5. It's what the kingdom of God people hunger for. In verse 10, it's the reason for which they suffer. But you have to say, what is this righteousness? What is this righteousness that Jesus speaks so readily about? What we will see in our short passage today is that this righteousness is conformity to, or it is a likeness to the character of God himself, which is made clear, how? Through his law. So the good deeds of verse 16, if you see that just in the verse before our passage today, they are good works of obedience according to God's kingdom standard. They are not whatever is considered good by the, the person who is doing them. They are what is good in God's eyes, revealed to us in his law, which is found in his Bible, his word. Again, you may like, I speak to myself here, you may like your sweaty t-shirt of a life. But God requires to be in his eternal kingdom, if you like, a Windsor knot, iron shirt of a life. 
Now, we'll see that illustration is totally inadequate, but I hope you get the point. Our passage today is therefore so, so helpful because it shows us, if you like, the level required for anyone to get into God's good eternal kingdom. Helpfully, though, our passage begins showing us how Jesus relates to all of this. It summarizes Christ's righteousness in relation to God's standard. Our passage also acts, uh, just for, if you're here for weeks to come, it acts as an introduction for all the following sections in the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. There are six illustrations that follow, you'll see those, and how each, we see how Christ relates to the law at each occurrence. Each are introduced, you've heard, and then he says, but I say to you. What Jesus is doing here is he's making clear what had been distorted by other teachers. What he's doing is he's summarising how he relates to the law and how that relates to us, you and me, here today. I don't know if you spot. Go back to the beginning of the Beatitudes. Do you see the a bit of grammar here? Do you see the tense that they're written in? They begin there. Jesus says, blessed are those that. Begins in the third person. Last week we saw in our passage 14 to, uh, 13 to 16, it speaks of in the second person. You are the salt of the earth. What's going on? There is an increasing intensity to what Jesus is saying. And here we get to our passage today, and he's, if you like, honing in. And he's saying, you. Speaking directly to each of us. It's a very powerful message. To any of us who think they can wear their own t-shirt of a life and gain entry to the kingdom of God. Oh, you may have a designer t-shirt. Nicer than anyone else's. You may have more t-shirts than anyone else. But the challenge will be for us and for Neil and Shona as they raise Milo. That we see what clearly is required. And we see how high the standard really is to get into God's good eternal kingdom. Firstly though, we must understand how Jesus relates to that standard. And it may surprise you. Let's look again. Turn your eyes down to verse 17 if you wouldn't mind. That would be great. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Our first main point is this. The king fulfills the demands of the law. Now, Jesus, we know in other gospel accounts, he'd been going around, he'd been teaching, he'd been healing. Everyone had been saying, who is this guy with all this authority? It was natural, therefore, that people were asking What was the relationship between this bloke, Jesus, who had all this authority, and the authority that they knew within God's law in the Old Testament? It would have been clear as people looked at the Pharisees and the teachers of the law around, they would have said, well, the only authority that they looked to or they trusted is the authority of the law. But with Jesus, things would have been quite unclear. They would have been asking, is Jesus coming? Is he just abolishing law? Is he getting rid of all the Old Testaments? Is that old? That's a bit outdated, that stuff. You can imagine them sort of like chatting around in the courtyards. Oh, we can do without that. We're now in kind of like, you know, Bible 2.0. We've, we've taken the software update, if you like. The question still remains today. And if I'm honest, it's been throughout the centuries. A chap named Marcion in the second century so disliked this teaching that he decided in his rewrite of the New Testament to just not include it at all. He just stripped it out. 
His followers took it a little bit further, in fact, and they reversed it. They thought they could do that. And they, I quote, they say, I have come, this is speaking of Jesus, I've come not to fulfill the law and the prophets, but to abolish them. They hated this teaching so much, they completely reversed it round. Now, it seems arrogance. And we may mock their ignorance in trying to change a historically evidenced manuscript. But let me put it in modern day terms if I can. Because we hear this all the time. People will say of Jesus, oh, he came in love. He was such a nice teacher. Therefore, the only kind of instruction, the law that binds us, uh, and anyone in a church or around, is the law of love. The command to love is the only absolute there is. Of course, in a postmodern pluralistic society in which we live, we're told we can all determine how we love and what kind of love we will show. So we determine it. We make the choice. No one else. We put on the t-shirt emblazoned with the word love and even if we don't love as we intend, if even if we fail our own standards, well, we love our way. And therefore we meet that tempered absolute. Simply, we, like Marcy and his followers, we produce an update of the law, a law of our own making. But Jesus, I'm sorry, I can't change this. Jesus says categorically here, I've not abolished the law. You can't get rid of it. Rather, I've fulfilled it. Literally, the word is, I've filled it up. He hasn't endorsed it in a dry, kind of legalistic way. He hasn't kind of tipped his cap at it, a very British way of doing things. He hasn't fulfilled all of... Sorry, he has fulfilled all of the Old Testament law and the prophets. But how? Now, we can spend hours here. I'm going to mention three things very quickly. He fulfills all of the predictions, the messianic predictions of the Old Testament. From the place of his birth to the nature of his death... All the predictions of a Messiah to come, a Christ in the Greek, are all fulfilled in Jesus. There are 120 or 130 of them altogether. So he fulfills all the Messianic predictions. Secondly, he fulfills all the demands of the law in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you've got this sacrificial system with the priests in the temple that would atone for the rebellion of the people. And all of that points to Jesus. The point is, as we look to the law in the Old Testament, we see it in graphic terms. What do we see, though? Simply, we see our need. We see our need before God. I am not perfect. And I don't think you are either. And I think what we see Jesus fulfilling is, he's saying, all of that Old Testament sacrificial system It points to your need before God. Thirdly, Jesus fulfills all the commandments of the law of the Old Testament. A passage in Galatians says Jesus was born under the law. He fulfilled all righteousness, Matthew tells us earlier on. That is, he never did anything against it. He fulfilled every commandment of the law. Even when he was being crucified at trial before then, even his enemies, the people who hated him, the people nitpicking through his life, they couldn't find anything wrong. Paul in Romans 10 does say that Christ is the end of the law, but that doesn't mean we're now free to ignore it. Quite the opposite. 
It, it simply means that acceptance with God is, is not through obedience to the law. We can't do it. We've got to put our hands up. Rather, it's through faith in him, Christ, who did. He fulfilled the law in every way. Christ has come, you see. Jesus came to this earth to fulfill the law because he saw me. He looked at me and he looked at you and he said, in my love, I cannot let this go on. He knows that you or I could never fulfill the law. And so he comes to do it for us. Verse 18 spells out the necessity. We won't uh, spend too long on it. But it's necessary for Jesus to fulfill the law because of the nature of the law. We see it there. It's a permanent law. It's not a law that doesn't need an update. It will be until everything is accomplished, it says there. It's never going to change in that way. Therefore, Jesus is saying there, there's never a bit. You can't look at any point in the Old Testament and go, I really don't like that. That doesn't fit with my lifestyle. My way of thinking, my worldview, my choices, my philosophy. You can't do that, Jesus is saying here. It literally says, not an iota. It's the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet, or the smallest punctuation mark, the stroke of the pen in our translation there. Nothing of it can we take out. Jesus is saying you can't get rid of any of the Old Testament until it is fulfilled. That is, completely, until the heaven and earth will pass away, until everything is accomplished. Now, let me just finish here. Why, why is this so important? Can't we just ignore the handbook? Can't we go to work, do the relationships we want on our own terms? Surely we can look at this old book, so many years old, and say, I'm not bothered. Can you see the amount of money in my bank account? Can you see the power that I've exerted in my life? Can you see all the way that I seem so sorted? Can't we just leave it? I want to do things my way. No. The Old Testament, I must say, tells us about the righteousness and the holiness of God. And at times it can be humbling. It is jaw-dropping at times. And to ignore it, well, you can do things your way, but you will soon find out how far short you are of the standards required. In that way, if you, like, if you look at your employee's handbook, if you're at work, in a sense it's an instrument of grace. It's a kindness from your company to show you the standards they require. And that is how we should view the Old Testament. It is an instrument of grace. Abolish the law and you ignore that instrument of kindness that shows us God's standard for his kingdom. If you want to be part of God's good eternal kingdom, you must look at the whole book. Not the updated, amended version of your making. Martin Luther just simply put it this way, the great reformer. He says, you must fly to Jesus who fulfills the law. So the king fulfills the demands of the law. But what should we do? Jesus fulfills the law. He doesn't abolish it. So what then? Very quickly and briefly to finish. The kingdom commands obedience to the law. Look at me again at verse 19 quickly. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I don't know if you watched X Factor last night. It was pretty awful. Simon Cowell, who leads that program, it's his uh, little thing, isn't it? 
He has now a rather predictable response, doesn't he, to an actor that he enjoys. It goes something like this. That wasn't good. Moment of silence. Big music playing in the background. That was great. So he said every time. It's so predictable. Now we often use that word great, don't we? Great service today. It wasn't Milo. A lovely outfit. Great outfit, Milo. Everything's great. You'll have lunch today with, you know, I've shown you put a wonderful spread on. Great sandwiches, great drinks, great everything. Great to be with the family again. Everything's great. We often use that word great though, don't we? We don't preserve our usage of it to heighten its meaning. But when Jesus uses the word great, he does so sparingly and rightly. Look what he does in verse 19. You must not overlook this. Whoever practices and teaches these commands, the the law, the Old Testament, would be called great. That would be great. Not just your great, but Jesus is great in the kingdom of heaven. The point, and I'm not going to dwell on this too long. Keeping the law makes an eternal difference. If you're a Christian here today... Keeping the law makes an eternal difference. There will be just rewards for those who keep the law in heaven. Flip forward to Matthew 25 later if you want. And Jesus makes the same point in what we probably know as the parable of the tenants. He called the parable of gold now. Bags of gold. Now I know this sounds strange, but we can't read this any other way. Our righteousness matters. Our living matters as Christians, if we are Christians here today. And will be rewarded My question to finish is this, though. Will it be enough to save us? And that's where we get to our last verse. Look at verse 20. And here's the shocker. I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. I'd like to say sorry at this point. These are not my words. This is Jesus speaking to you, by his word and his Holy Spirit. Now you've got to remember who the Pharisees are, historically. They are the folks who created even more laws outside of the Old Testament in order to keep the laws of the Old Testament. They were the law keepers of the law keepers. They added about 270 extra laws and they were very proud of themselves as a result. In the light of that, Don't you find this slightly frightening? Jesus is saying you've got to to get a higher standard than the Pharisees to get into heaven. Now at first glance, I guess some of us just want to pack up our bags and go home right now. And ignore this. It's too difficult. We can't do this, can we? But Jesus thinks less of the Pharisees than they do themselves. Their righteousness, what was it like? It was external. It was a ceremonial kind of, it was all show. Look at me, righteous that I am. I grew up in that kind of culture. Look down my nose at anyone. Kind of school you go to. Kind of job you have. Their devotion was to be seen to be doing the right thing and it led to a very dangerous self-satisfaction. They were legalistic. 
And what Jesus has been teaching and will continue to teach is radically different. The Pharisees, you see, were all about quantitative righteousness. Being seen to do what is right as much as possible. But Jesus here is commanding a deep, penetrative righteousness, which is far more radical and goes deeper into our hearts and our minds. Let me finish and summarise very quickly. Look, the kingdom commands. There are obligations to be in the eternal kingdom of God, but as we saw, yes, the king fulfils the demands of the law. How should we respond? Should we ignore the Old Testament law? No, the kingdom commands obedience to the law. Jesus requires for those in his kingdom an inner work, a qualitative transformation. Look how high the line is set. Just come with me to the end of this chapter, just in our last verse. Flip over the page, one page, page 970, and read the last verse of chapter 5. Verse 48. Here's the standard that Jesus sets. He says, be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I just want to ask you, how are you doing? How are you doing? I'm doing really badly. Is Jesus being a slightly cruel here? Can you imagine if you opened up your employee handbook, or if you're a boss that you wrote in your employer's handbook, open up page one, 1 1.1, Be perfect. How many employees do you reckon you could keep? So what is Jesus saying here? The point is this, and if you've been asleep, it's hot in here, I can't believe how hot I am, it's quite uncomfortable. This is the time to wake up. Jesus is saying simply, my friends, you cannot do this. Jesus is saying... You, I, need some help. Jesus is saying you need grace. Undeserved kindness from me. Look at the Beatitudes. Just go back. Page uh, 968. Look at last week's passage about being salt and light. And, and, And all of it. Put it together. Give it a go. See how much you're going to fall short of the standard. So my encouragement to you is this as we finish. Chapter 5, verse 3. Go back to the beginning of the Beatitudes. You need this. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What Jesus is saying there is this. We must see ourselves as needy. That is so hard if you've done well in life. You've got to see yourself as essentially spiritually bankrupt, which is so difficult if you drive a nice car and you earn a good wage. The point is we cannot do this before Jesus on our own. We are not good enough to gain entry to God's good eternal kingdom. And none of us are. Not one. With the exception of one. His name was Jesus. Because he fulfilled the law. His righteousness is unsurpassed. Every day he went to work and he did everything that was required. He met the standard. So what? Well, he didn't do it to show you up. Or to kind of like mock the Pharisees. <laughs> Look at me, comparing to you. 
He fulfilled the law because he looked at me and he saw the t-shirt of a life that I live. He saw that I could never in my strength and power do what was required to be with God for eternity. And in his love, he gave his perfect righteous life to be counted as mine. All I need to do is I need to put my trust in him, my faith in him. Not in myself, but in Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That is, those who realise the high demands of the entry into the kingdom of God. Those who realise they cannot, they cannot do it themselves. Those who see the undeserved kindness of Jesus, his grace, and trust him. They put their faith in him. Imagine, just as we finish, you go to work tomorrow in a sweaty, horrible t-shirt. You've read the handbook. You know you're going to get fired. But someone stands at the office door. And they offer you their perfect bespoke suit that completely fulfills all the requirements that you need. You quickly change, you swap, he gets your t-shirt and he provides you this perfect, gorgeous suit. Your boss, as you walk in, gives you a compliment. Love your suit. You look great. Welcome in. The other person walks in after you in your rather ill-fitting, rather grimy t-shirt and all you hear behind you is you are fired. Pack up your box and get out. In his love, Jesus fulfills the law and he offers you his perfect life and he will take all the justice that your rebellion deserves before God and he will take it on himself. And as I finish, my appeal is simply this. Trust him and him alone. Let's pray as we close. Lord God and Heavenly Father, it is hot in here. And we do thank you so much, though, for the opportunity to come before you, to hear you speak through your word. Heavenly Father, none of us can say any of this, that we've mastered any of it. Please warn us from arrogance in our own hearts. Lord, many of us here have been incredibly blessed in so many ways. We have safety. We have a good amount of money and family security. So many things. On our day like today where we've enjoyed dedicating Milo, we thank you for all the provisions that he has. But may he and many of us here never trust in ourselves May we be poor in spirit and see our need for the Lord Jesus Christ who fulfills all the law for us in our place as he dies on the cross. Amen.